Amen. Amen. All right. While they receive the offering, why don't you guys fill out your Bibles? Go ahead and pull them out. Luke 24 is where we're going to be this morning. Hey, my name is Josh Knight. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Flourishing Grace. I'm the pastor of uh, preaching and vision, which means I just, I just talk a lot. And so that's what we're going to do for a little bit. We're going to open up the Word together um, and talk about it this morning. We're going to look at Luke 24. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible... Left it in the car, you left it at home, uh, your dog ate it, your kid dropped it in the toilet, whatever happened to it. Um, there's a Bible underneath the seat that you are sitting in. There's a brand new blue Bible uh, underneath there. Go ahead and pull that out. Uh, Luke 24 is where we are. And in that blue Bible, it's on page 980, 980 um, in that blue Bible. Here's the deal. If you don't own a Bible, you don't have a Bible at home, uh, you don't have a Bible in your car, you didn't forget it, you just don't own one, steal that one. Steal that one, okay? That's, that's for you to take home. There's one string attached, though. You have to tell a friend that you stole a Bible from church, and you need to video their response, all right? Listen, a lot of Bibles get stolen here. I haven't got a single video yet, people, all right? It's coming one of these days, I know, but I can't wait. So that's, that is your goal this week, um, to video that and send it to me. Um, we're at Luke 24. We've been in the Gospel of Luke now since December, and we're wrapping it up today. Luke 24 is, of course, the resurrection of Christ. And there's a story that occurs in Luke 24 um, that does not occur in the rest of the Gospels. In Luke 24, we see a story. It's not, it's not in Matthew, and it's not in John. Uh, Mark does give like two sentences to it, but he doesn't really talk about it. Luke gives a whole, whole page to it um, in his Gospel. And so we're going to look at this story together. But a little bit of background before we dive into the story. Um, Obviously, Easter morning, the Resurrection Sunday, Sunday uh, morning, the women, uh, there's three women specifically who are named in the Gospel of Luke. Um, you have Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, Mary Magdalene, and then another woman, Joanna. There might be more women than that, but these three for sure go to the tomb that morning. They have oils and spices that they're going to anoint the body with, right? In Jewish custom and tradition and in first century Israel, they didn't embalm the bodies, and so they would start to stink after a few days. And so on on the third day, they would go to the tomb to uh, anoint the body and kind of cover up that scent, um, if you will. And so they go and they bring the spices to the tomb. But as they arrive, the, the stone is rolled away and the body of Christ is gone. It's gone. And in the place where Christ was laid, there are two angels that appear to these women. And one of the two speaks. He says, why do you look for the living among the dead? For he has risen. And they are in shock and awe and fear, and they're not sure what to do, so they run back to tell the disciples. And along the way, Jesus appears to each of these women. He appears, they actually, their eyes see the resurrected Christ. They're the first ones to see him. And they run back and they tell the disciples, but the disciples don't believe him. Like, that's not how this, that, no, there's no way. But two of the disciples, Peter and John, run back to the tomb, and they find it just the way that the women described Open, no body, and no Jesus. There's no Jesus. There's no sign of Jesus. In fact, for the rest of that morning, there's no sign of him. He doesn't appear. He doesn't show up. He doesn't say, hey, here I am, guys. Let's go hang out. That doesn't happen. Until later that day, he appears to two of these men. 
Later in the day, the, the disciples had been t- hanging out together all day long. Uh, not, just the, not just the 11, but multiple people who had been following Jesus, his closest followers, had all gathered together and they're hanging out. And literally, um, they have not eaten in days, right? Good Friday to Easter morning for them was so stressful and so much agony and so much pain and so much worry and so much anxiety, right? They, they're not sleeping, they're not eating. And two of these guys say, hey, man, let's go home. Let's go home. These two, they live nearby. They live just outside of Jerusalem. About seven miles outside of Jerusalem, there's a small town. There's a little teeny tiny town called Emmaus. And that's where these two live, these two disciples. Again, not, not two of the 11, but two disciples of Jesus. They live in this town, Emmaus. And so they're like, man, I'm tired and I'm hungry and he's not here. He's not coming. Let's go home. And so as they leave the city, they're walking home. Uh, a man appears to them on the road. And they're, they're in this emotional state. Right? Again, I said they're tired, they're hungry, but they're also, they're grieving and they're processing. They're talking to each other about all the things that they've seen, all the things that they've witnessed. Everything that's been going on since Palm Sunday um, to Easter morning, all of these things. It's confusing. It's hard. There's, there's tears. There's sorrow. There's, there's, there's confusion. And this guy walks up, kind of appears out of nowhere and says, hey, what's going on? What are you guys talking about? And that's where we're going to pick up the story um, this morning. In Luke chapter 24, verse 15 is where we're going to pick it up. And if you would for me, friends, um, in honor and reverence of the Word of God, that is sharper than any two-edged sword, is living and active, this is His Word. If you would, in reverence to the Word, if you would stand with me as I read the Scriptures together, uh, I'm going to read it for you this morning. Luke 24, verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? That, that verse tells us they're not far from Jerusalem, right? They know he's a visitor to Jerusalem. They know he doesn't know what's going on, right? They're, they're just beginning the seven-mile journey. Verse 19, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be, cru- to, to, to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they, and then when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen visions of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, 
He took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed. And he's appeared to Simon. And then they told him what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This, friends, this is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. So Jesus shows up to these two men on their way home to Emmaus, right? One of them is named Cleopas. The other one, we don't know his name. It's not recorded in history. It's not recorded anywhere in history. Um, Jesus shows up, but they don't recognize him. Now they know him well. They would have recognized him, but they don't recognize him. It's not because Jesus um, is in disguise or is unrecognizable, right? He's not wearing a mustache or shaved his head or um, anything like that. No, 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 no. It's something totally different. Jesus has, has supernaturally manipulated their sense of sight to accomplish a greater purpose. He has bent, bent their sense of sight to his will to accomplish a greater purpose in his life. He has something greater for them than the ability to see Christ resurrected. That might take you a second. Jesus has something greater for these men than the ability to see the resurrected body of Christ. There's something greater than seeing Christ. You know what it is? Don't worry, we're going to get there. He says this, he says, they, they say, listen, he says, what are you guys talking about? They say, what do you mean what are we talking about? We're talking about the same thing everybody's talking about. And literally everybody is talking about Jesus. And they, and they say, man, and, and, and not only this, it's the third day. They had this deep hope, and that hope is gone. They're tired, and they're lost, and they're sad. They stand there, they stand there just sad. And Jesus looks at them, and he says, oh, you foolish ones, you slow of heart. You don't understand the prophets. You, you don't understand that, that the Christ had to suffer and had to die in order to be risen into glory. You don't understand that? And then it says this in verse 27. In beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Beginning with Moses, that, that is Genesis, the book of Genesis, beginning at the very beginning. He walks them through from the Garden of Eden to Abraham and Isaac and Moses to, to the, into the Psalms and the wisdom literature of, uh, of Proverbs into the kings of, of David and uh, so Solomon. And, and, the, and he paints this picture of all the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, from Genesis to Malachi, from beginning to end. He shows them that this is, this is one singular story, one picture, one story. And it's all about one person in one moment, Jesus. It's all about him. It has been ordained by God and created by God thousands of years, thousands and thousands of years of Jewish history, all orchestrated by God to point the world to Christ. He shows them over the course of about three hours, this seven-mile journey, he shows them it's all about me. He walks them through again and again and again from beginning to end. Right? Do you guys know where the first picture of Jesus is in the Bible? The very first glimpse of Christ, what he's going to be like, what he's going to do. You know where he shows up first? 
Genesis, the very beginning. In fact, in fact, in Genesis, right, Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. They, they sin against God. They, they eat from the forbidden tree. The one thing that they're told not to do, you can do whatever you want, but this thing's mine. They choose that anyways. And God begins to lay out a curse. In Genesis 3, he lays out a curse. He curses the man. He has a curse for the woman. And he has a curse for the serpent or Satan. Satan in the form of a snake. He has a curse for each one of them. And in the curse of Satan, in the curse, God places the seed of hope, the seed of restoration, the plan to restore it all. It comes in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 reads this way. He says, I will place, I will put enmity, this, this kind of lingering strife, this, this constant uh, uh, tension between you and the woman, between Satan and the woman, and between her offspring, and the Hebrew word there is actually seed, her seed. Ladies, what's wrong with that? Bio 101? Doesn't work that way. Right? Between her seed and your seed. Right? He's saying between one single male human being, right? Between humanity, right? And one single male human who's going to come from a woman and, and between you, between Satan. And then he goes on, he says, and he will, you will bruise, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. He says, you're going to get him, Satan, you're going to get him, but it's only a heel shot. It's not that bad, right? It's just, it's just a little nip on the heel. It's temporary. It's, it's, it's light. It's momentary. You're going to get him. Yes, it's not going to go well for him, but it's going to go far worse for you. He's going to crush your head. You're going to get him on the heel, but he's going to get you on the head. In the curse, God says, listen, I'm going to send one, one single male, and he is going to bring an end to this curse. You're going to get him. You're going to get him on the heel. He's going to suffer, but he is going to crush the curse. He's going to break the curse of sin and death. He's going to break Satan's power over humanity. Starts in the beginning. And Jesus starts here on the road to Emmaus, and he walks them through every story that you grew up. If you grew up going to church in Sunday school, every story, every character, every hero, the great conquerors and those who blew it all and, just, and were just totally horrible, all of it points, tells one story, points to one person. It declares that there is a people and those people are broken and in need of a Savior. And it points to a God who is loving and wants to redeem his people, has a plan to redeem his people, a rescuing God. Takes him to all of those stories, stories like Jonah. Jonah is sent to Nineveh, right? But he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. So he gets on a boat going the opposite direction. God sends a storm, a massive storm, a storm so big that it's literally destroying the boat. And the men on the boat are panicking in fear. And Jonah says, I, I have a solution. In order for you to, to live, in order for you to survive, I must die. In order for you to live, you must take me and throw me overboard. And so they grab Jonah and they throw him overboard. And the storm stops. Jonah goes into the belly of a fish for three days. He spit upon the shore of Nineveh in order to bring redemption and restoration to a people who are far from God. All of it points to Christ, one who is going to come later. And in order for us to survive, he must die. In order for the people whom he loves to survive, they must put him to death by their own hands. He's going to go into the grave for three days. But he will emerge victorious in order to bring restoration and redemption to a people who are far from God. 
Jesus walks them through these stories. He is the greater Adam. The greater Adam who is obedient to God, pure before God, a worthy sacrifice. He's the greater Abraham who leaves the comfort of his home, leaves heaven to enter into a broken and foreign land in order to bring out a new people for God. He, he is the greater Isaac who when Isaac is, is offered up as a sacrifice to God, God says, Abraham, Listen, because you did not withhold your son from me, your only son, I now know you love me. Now we can say to God, because you did not withhold your son from us, your only son, we now know that God loves us. He's the, greatest, he's the greater Moses, the true and greater Moses, who delivers his people out of the slavery and bondage of sin into the freedom of grace. He's the greater David, who defeats the giant of sin in the most unlikely way. Jesus walks them through every single one of these stories. He takes them through passages of Scripture like Isaiah 7, 14 to show them that he must be born of a virgin. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Takes you through verses like Micah 5, 2 to show them that he must be born in Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephraim, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, the ancient of days. It was predestined before the foundation of the world that the Savior would come from Bethlehem. Zechariah eleven twelve, that he must be bought with 30 pieces of silver. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. Maybe Psalm 22, that he would be nailed to the cross. For dogs encompass me, my company of evil doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. Maybe Isaiah 25, 8 through 9, that he'll conquer sin and death. Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. The Lord our God will wipe away every tear from all faces. In the reproach of his people, he will take away from the earth. The Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Jesus is the real Passover lamb. He's the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true temple, the true sacrifice, the true lamb of God, the true light, the true bread. Jesus walks them from Genesis to Malachi over the course of three hours. I got like 10 minutes left. We could be here all day. We could, do, we could literally do this all day. From Genesis to Malachi, he walks them through verse by verse, story by story, hero by failure, all of it. He says, there's one central story. It's all about me. It all tells the story of who I am, why I'm going to come, what I'm going to accomplish on your behalf. It's all about me. The question is, why does Jesus not allow them to see his face? Why, why does he control their sense of sight? 
I said at the beginning of this, I, I believe it's because Jesus has something greater for them than seeing the physical resurrected Christ. Now you say, Josh, what could be greater than that? If Jesus walked out here right now, you guys would be like, Josh, get out of here. And that's true. It would be way better than this. I promise, way better than this. But there's something better. There is something greater than seeing the resurrected cross. And that's what Jesus wants for these two men. He wants them to know the resurrected cross. He wants them to know the resurrected cross. You see, you can stare at the sun all day long in the fullness. I wouldn't recommend it. It's not healthy. You can stare at the sun all day long in, in the fullness of its brilliance and brightness, and you're like, man, that's, that's cool. That's amazing. But you still don't know it. You don't know the power of the sun, and the, you, you, you don't know the energy that it produces. You don't you know the temperature at which it burns, how vast and how mighty and how massive it is. You can't get that but just by looking at it. Jesus says there's so much more to this. There's so much more that you must understand. There's so much more. If I'm going to ascend into heaven and I'm going to leave you here, there's so much more. There's something far greater than seeing me, knowing me. To know Christ, to know Christ is to know that what, that what he did, that he was able to accomplish far more than we can begin to imagine. To know that he was able to, to conquer sin, to conquer death, that he was God's answer to the curse, that he was in the very form and nature. God, to know Christ is to know God. To know Christ. There's nothing greater. There's nothing more powerful. There's nothing more beautiful than knowing Christ. And Christ knows, he knows that if they see him, if they see the, the resurrected Christ, they will be distracted by what they see, and they will never know him. They'll be distracted by what they see, and they will never know Christ. They'll never, they'll, they won't be able to endure what they're going to have to endure, because they will have only seen it. Christ says it, actually, in Luke 16. He says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. If they don't listen to Moses, if they don't know who I am, they will not be persuaded if they see me resurrected. Some of us in this room, uh, we come and we see Christ, but we don't know him. Seeing Christ makes us feel good, but it's not the same as knowing Christ. Seeing Christ uh, makes us feel like maybe there's hope, but knowing Christ restores what is actually broken in our lives. It brings healing to our lives when, we, when our lives are filled up with Christ. In that moment, on that day, the temple, the curtain is torn in two. There's no longer a separation between God and man. There's no longer a need uh, for temples. There's no longer a need for a high priest. He is our high priest. Christ takes up residence inside of us. He breaks down the barrier between him and us so that we might know him, might experience the full power of the resurrection, experience the full power in our marriages, in our careers, in our families. My question for you friends today, what have you been staring at? that has distracted you from him? What, what in your life have you been looking at that has stopped you from knowing Christ? Maybe you've been staring so hard at your career, just trying to get this thing to work, trying to, or maybe a, maybe a vision of your career in the future, and you're just trying to get there. It's holding you back from knowing Christ. 
Maybe you've been staring at a circumstance in your life. You've been, you've been so consumed with the brokenness and the pain and the sorrow in your life. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's with your family. You've been so consumed with it that you, you, it's robbed you from actually knowing Christ, opening the eyes of your heart. And so you come in, you want to feel better, and so you look to Christ. You look to him in his resurrection. You look to him on the cross. But there's a far difference between seeing him and knowing him. And that's my call to you this morning, friends. Know Christ. Run towards Christ. Close your eyes to all things, everything else. Let the, let the things of this world grow dim in comparison to the light of knowing him. In him is the power of the resurrection. In him is healing and restoration. In him is eternal life. He is the true light. Look full into his wonderful face. Know Christ. There's nothing greater in life than to know him. Cling to him, know him, pursue him with all that you have, with all that you are. Let me pray for us. Jesus, this morning we come before you and we declare the great truth that all of it is about you. The entire word, thousands of years of Jew Jewish history, from beginning to end, from Genesis to Malachi, it's all you. You have been preparing the world for one singular moment. It all flows to the resurrection. It all flows out of the resurrection to your second coming. Might we be ready? Might we not be surprised? Might we know you in that moment? Say, here he comes. I know him. He's coming back for me. And here he comes. I know him. I've spent time in the quiet hours of the morning with him. I've plumbed the depths of his word in order to know the power of Christ, in order to experience it in my life. I've spent hours bathed in prayer, prayer-saturated lives. I know him. So he's met me there in that place. I don't seek his face. I seek his heart. I realign my affections and my desires to meet him, to be like him. Jesus, give us a bigger picture of who you are. Open the eyes of our heart. Open our minds to know you. Let us cling to you. Pray that it be true today in the hearts and the lives and the minds of the people in this room. Praise things in your name. In the name of Jesus. Amen.